This episode of With Love and Justice for All is brought to you by Bliss Books and Wine. Bliss Books and Wine is an independent black-owned bookstore for wine enthusiasts and book lovers. Listed as one of the black-owned bookstores in America that amplify the best in literature by OprahDaily.com, Bliss Books and Wine is your go-to for all your favorite titles, including ebooks and audiobooks. And when we buy from black-owned businesses, we are helping to create a world of racial equity. When ordering online, use the code 846BOOK for a 10% discount. That's 846-B-O-O-K for a 10% discount at blissbooksandwine.com. Exploring the healing and culture building practices of embodied anti-racism. This is With Love and Justice for All with Reverend Ogan Holder and Reverend Kelly Isola. Hello, welcome to the official podcast of Project Sanctus with Love and Justice and Liberation for All. I am Reverend Kelly Isla, and I am here with my partner in crime, consciousness, and creation, Reverend Ogan, uh, also with our special guest today, Reverend Derek Weston, and I will or we'll introduce him in a few minutes, but I want to welcome you to season three uh, with Love and Justice for All. I added the liberation when I first talked. I was going to say, I, I love that you expand, I love that you spontaneously expanded the title of our podcast. I, I had some well, questions. <laughs> yeah, no, eventually I'll circle back to, yeah. <laughs> okay, um, and it is our, it is our third season. It's just our second episode into our third season. And which is very exciting. Uh, here is where we have conversations around embodied anti-racism, dismantling oppression, fostering liberation, uh, and especially at times the special challenges that arise as spiritual seekers, spiritual communities. Uh, before we dive deeper into today's show, I uh, want to give a thanks to our listeners, our subscribers, to those that uh, donate um, financially. Um, it keeps the doors open, keeps the lights on, keeps us the internet going. Um, we don't have interns or admin. We are the interns. Um, so thank you to our listeners and our subscribers. Here in the U.S., we have 45 out of 50 states, and we have reached over 24 countries around the world, including Algeria, Nicaragua, India, South Africa, Barbados. Right, Ogan? So, uh, and so, so they tell me. Yeah. <laughs> they're even listening when i'm not there usually usually that listening stat is when i'm there but we still get listeners when i'm not there so that's that's pretty cool yeah uh over three thousand downloads so be sure to you know go back and you can always download the episodes to listen to them again or on your favorite podcast platform uh if you want to join in the conversation you can message us on facebook or instagram our handle is at get our holy on you can also call us uh we have a phone number leave a message 413 get holy 413 get holy which is 413-438-4659 if you're not sure of the letters what letters go to which number on your phone so ogan tell us about today um very excited to continue our conversation from uh, the last episode, um, Climate Justice is Racial Justice. This is part two. And today we are thrilled to welcome our returning champion. I think you might've been the guest that maybe appeared most on our podcast. I think, I, I'm, I might not be sure, but it sounds right. <laughs> well, if it's not true, it should be true. It should be true. And you did some, I think you did some other recordings. For some, I don't know, but anyways, thrilled to have uh, 
our friend and colleague, uh, Derek Weston, returning to us. How are you today, Derek? I'm doing great. Uh, I, I do hope that I, that is a title that I want. Um, so if it's not true now, I will, I, I will make, make it happen. <laughs> there, there you go. Um, we might, we might have to do that. Um, Derek is the theological education and training coordinator for creation justice ministries. He's also a writer, a filmmaker, a podcaster, a speaker. He does all the things and his work, most recent work has been focused on the intersection of food and faith. He's the co-host of the Food and Faith podcast and producer of Spoon, Spade, and Soul, a podcast highlighting food and land-based ministries in the Episcopal Church. He's also a producer of the short film series, A Wilderness Like Eden, which highlights the work of churches engaged in food justice work. And he recently just dropped a book on top of all of it called The Just Kitchen, Invitations to Sustainability, Cooking, Connection, and Celebration. After two decades of being a pastor and community organizer, uh, amazingly, he is not burnt out and disillusioned. He actually has a stronger belief in the potential of local congregations to enact change in their community. He and his wife, Shannon, have four children and live outside of Baltimore, Maryland. So um, really thrilled to have you with us to help continue this conversation. Um, but, but first off, I got to ask, Creation Justice Ministries. What what is that? Who are you all, and what do you do? Yeah. Um, so thanks for having me. Glad I could be here again. Um, Creation Justice Ministries is about. Um, we are a nonprofit faith based ministry that we ha- we are partnering with. Um, close to forty denominations. Um, Christian denominations, um, helping people to be educated on uh, environmental issues, uh, helping people to take action and advocacy around uh, creation justice issues, um, and uh, just just basically helping people connect the dots uh, between uh, their faith and what is going on with our current climate crisis. So that was good follow-up then to expand on creation justice. Now, I know about environmental justice. I know about food justice. Define creation justice. I, I think creation justice is a way of, of, in some ways, acknowledging that our environment and the people within it, uh, so it's kind of an inclusive term, uh, for those of us of 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 faith recognize uh, this all as having been created, um, been created by by God, um, and recognizing that that understanding, I, you know, I've, as I've been talking about my work over the last couple of weeks, it's it's kind of like if you give any kind of moral assent to Genesis one one, and you just kind of stop there then there are some imperatives that are are kind of built into that idea imperatives that include that if if god created the heavens and the earth then uh then the earth is god's and we have some responsibilities that come out of that assertion so um and even if even if your understanding of of what who god is uh, might differ from the traditional Christian one. I think there's an understanding of 
of a of a created order that was not made by humanity that um, is deserving of its own dignity and its own um, protections. Because we are just messing it up, aren't we? Well, we're not doing great. <laughs> hey, we, always we hopeful. We can do better. <laughs> yeah, we can do better. Can always do better. So for those not familiar with scripture, Genesis 1-1 says... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. Um, and and I I think I think that's you know uh, maybe of of all the things in Scripture, if if you have to pick one verse that's going to stretch your belief, uh, I I think it's there. It's the first one. Um, and and if you're if you're willing to give any kind of credence to the idea that uh, the earth is a created thing um, again by by God or your understanding of, of who God is um, again that that takes the um, the idea of ownership and and dominion as it's kind of commonly uh, referred to in a lot of Christian circles kind of takes it out of our hands so it's 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 funny you bring that up because we we touched on this in our last uh our previous episode around the sort of I don't know um if hypocrisy is the word I want or as you alluded to earlier we're not doing a great job you know right right after the right out the gate challenge of God created heaven and earth uh, at few verses later, a few chapters later, if my Bible memory serves me correctly, humans were created and appointed as stewards. Um, and it's, you know, stewards being, I guess, loosely caretakers and, you know, but we also discussed how dominion, the use of the word dominion sometimes, um, gives us this sense of power over and pulls us apart from creation as opposed to the, the, the real, the reality is that we are part of the creation. We're not, we're not over it, but for some folks, because there's that element of we have the power over it, we don't necessarily see ourselves in union with it. And then on the other end of things, there's the whole idea of, eh, you know, Jesus is going to come back any day. So this, <laughs> we really don't, I'm, why put in all the work? So, <laughs> so sometimes the theology and the theological interpretations kind of pull us away from that sense of we need to really take care of this uh, and 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 be mindful of how we are not doing a great job of this. So in your work, you said you work with, uh, you know, 40 different denominations, you know, across the Christian spectrum. Where where are you finding people landing in terms of that? Is there a real understanding and sense of this is our work to do because it is holy work, it is sacred work, it is, it is you know, metaphorically or literally we've been created to do this work? Or is it more a sense of, oh, it's just a trendy thing to do, so let's do it? Or is there just like, you know, the bishop made us do it and we really like, in, in, you know, done, <laughs> or done even or... <clears throat> even out of guilt or fear of retribution? Yeah, sure. Th there's all of that too. What's, what's what's the general sense of there? There's a spectrum, but I, I think I think what's happening now is there's a lot of education that's needing to happen. Of I think there's there's a lot of people who are recognizing that there is a climate crisis 
And yet they're not connecting the dots between that and their faith. And I think that's that's where a lot of our work is falling. Um, because there is the, the this this pretty powerful evangelical narrative, which I would say is still the dominant narrative that dominion, our dominion over the over earth is interpreted as domination, right? And like you said, there's also this 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 still very strong belief that this earth doesn't matter because Jesus is going to come back and destroy it all, or we're all going to get raptured up and it's still going to get all destroyed. Well, not and, all, and not all of us are getting raptured not, up. Not all of yeah, us. Yeah, sure. and, and, but, but I crossed that off my list a long time ago. Well, nobody in this who, cares, who cares about the left behind people? So, um, so there's so there's a lot of there's a lot of work to do, but I think what's happening is there's there's some really great scholarship that's happening. Um, and, and what it is, what it is, is actually like rediscovering the agrarian nature of the Bible and rediscovering the earthbound nature of the Bible, that the Bible was written to a people who lived outdoors. And not only that, the Bible was written to a hungry people who live outdoors. And so the ideas of food and where does food come from were, were a daily exercise of survival. And when food was provided, it was understood that God provided food. And it was understood that um, that that's that's what it means to be um, in in good relationship with creation. Uh, my my friend John um, helped me understand this really well. He talks about uh, if you look at that first creation story, and there's two creation stories in Genesis. The first creation story, um, God creates the heavens and the earth, God and says it's good. God creates the light and the dark, says it's good. God creates the 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 plants, calls them good, the birds, the fish, the animals, God calls them good. And then on the sixth day, God creates humanity. And God says it's very good. And we in our anthropocentric viewpoint go, oh, we're the very good part. That's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is God looked at all that God had made and said that was very good. It's us being in right relationship with the rest of the created order. That's the very good part. It's not us very good. It's us in right relationship with that original created order. That's what's very good. I like that. I like that. You know, for those that are listening that are not Christian or not, you know, Bible based, uh, I think it's I, I like how you, you know, being in right relation with with the with creation or the order, you know, even even someone who's, you know, atheist, agnostic, you know, secular humanist, you know, that there is a even in science, there's an order. Right. Mm -hmm. And and us being able or willing to step into that order. Well, and, um, and a and a and a, and a non, with it. yeah, yeah, and a non-biblical way of saying that is that we have forgotten that we are part of an ecosystem. Right. We have decided that we are outside of ecosystems, right. but we are the the very goodness that I I think Genesis describes is actually. Um, sorry for the reminder that I just got that my daughter has a softball game um but um but the the very good relationship that i think genesis describes is 
us understanding ourselves as part of an ecosystem, which again, mm -hmm. science supports that. Um, science supports that there are evolutionary reasons for why we do the things that we do. And many of the things that we have done in, in recent uh, decades are, are baffling in some ways because all other species are very interested in keeping their species going. Um, we, seem not, we seem to not be so interested in keeping our yeah. species going. <laughs> you know what? I I, I maintain <laughs> we learned how to start fires and it was all downhill after that. <laughs> fires well, and then and then tools. And then we were like, oh, we we on top of this shit. And then there's, it was all downhill after that. There is a there's a considerable amount of literature that says that the downfall of humanity was the creation of agriculture. And, I've read that, and 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 I think. But hold on, wait. The... But wait, wasn't isn't there also a strong one in theory that agriculture was created to support religion? There's that. Okay, so it feels a little paradoxical. And, and well, uh, well, that was the I beginning mean, of the downfall. There's, there, there's also people who would say that religion was part of the beginning of the downfall. This is where right. I was going. So, and, and there I, go. I, I, yeah, I, I see how you get there. Yeah. I, I won't say I agree, but I see how you get there. We might all be getting left behind. <laughs> Let me just tell you It'll that. It'll be right. a fun party. If, if, if I'm left behind, I'll have a garden. So, uh, right. oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. You know, I, I have to, this is a sort of a Bible nerdy thing, but when you brought up Genesis 1-1, you know, the first um, first sentence in the, in the Bible, and um, I, it, I automatically go to the very first sentence of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word. And for me, there's not really a difference. You know, obviously written 1,500 years apart kind of thing, or at least 1,000 years apart, and different time, different mindset, different worldview, and I think saying the same thing in the beginning, you know, was the word. And however I define that word, like in the beginning was something, you know, um, beyond me that I, you know, and as you were talking about that we're part of an ecosystem, we as humans grew up out of earth like every other living entity. And and there's, I mean, we could we could really get super nerdy here um i know bible nerdy here we, we but, won't for ogan's sake but but for but, but whoa think hey <laughs> i i went to seminary too i know you don't yeah I don't sound there's like a difference well there's a difference between that and being bible nerdy <laughs> this is true but, but i but i think i think understanding the word and the fact that we we create world and we create understanding with words and that, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, that I had a professor who said that, you know, logos is not just um, translated as word, but it is it is the creating activity yes. that we use when we when we use words yep. for things. And so, yep. yeah, I mean, there's there's I, I, I absolutely agree that that, you know, one is coming from a ancient hebrew perspective one is coming from a more greco-roman perspective but in some ways they are very much saying the same thing yeah so that's my that's my bible geek for today all right so for the rest of us non-bible nerds <laughs> let's, let's bring back to something a little bit more relatable uh so the last time hey. you were <laughs> the last time you were here 
we talked we talked about food justice and uh, all the way back episode eight. By the way, we were in episode eighty three. Uh, you guessed that you were one of our earliest guests back in episode wow. eight, um, and we were talking about food and food justice, and we really made the connection between food justice and racial justice. That's what that conversation was around. So now I want to expand on that. And let's talk a little bit about how how food justice is also now related to climate justice. Yeah. So so give us give us give us a rundown on that. Um, we we we've talked about we last time we talked about you know as we as we spend more time and effort investing in growing our own our own foods and our own products and and bringing healthy foods to people who may not generally have access to healthy food, which generally tend to be marginalized folk. Um, this really helps level the playing field um, from a justice perspective. But how is it also good for the environment and 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 um, in terms of of the climate justice approach? Because we again, climate justice also racial justice. They're all connected. Talk, talk yeah. to us a little bit about that. Yeah, and and it's it's good that we continue to talk about how all of these things are connected and interconnected and interrelated. So the big issue with our food system is that um, like everything uh, in this country, we take something good and we make an industry of it. Um, Farming in and of itself is, I think, a very good and beautiful and right thing. The agricultural industry I think is a really horrible thing. Um, and I let's let's actually kind of go back to the origins of how our I'm gonna do a sort of an oversimplification here, but I'm gonna try and get us uh, kind of to the origins of this. And it because it's pretty recent, right? Um, the the Secretary of Agriculture for Richard Nixon. Um, basically told farmers, get big or get out, and basically began the assault on small factory farms. Now, there was a political pressure to do this. There was also a financial pressure to do this. And that financial pressure came from the fact that uh, World War II ended, and a lot of the chemicals that we use to create explosives in World War II, we found that we could also use as fertilizers in fields. So a Whoa. lot of people who had made their fortunes making explosives in World War II pivoted their 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 factories to making fertilizer for our fields. Now, that in and of itself should should freak us the fuck out, but. What happens then when you continually put chemicals into the ground to make your crops fertile, you are taking away the natural um, uh, resilience of the soil itself. And so you, you create a cycle that has to then perpetuate itself. And so you're putting more chemicals into the ground. Those chemicals are then leaching into our water. They're leaching into our ground. They're poisoning animals. Um, so and let me so there was yeah. there no fertilizing before there was fertilizing but there was natural fertilizing got like it okay manure yeah um and, and but we we found you know basically composting and again i am i am i am simplifying quite a bit yeah. but like but we we had more natural 
models of fertilizing um things like yeah compost fertilizer um but then we went to, we shifted to chemical fertilizer and chemical fertilizing not only does it damage the soil it also strips nutrients from the food itself so our food is actually our produce our our tomatoes our lettuce our broccoli is actually about 50 percent less healthy than it was at the start of the nixon administration does um, that mean i don't have to eat my vegetables anymore no it means you have to eat more of them to, if it's going to have any effect i um, did not so... want to hear that today <laughs> <laughs> so and, and and here's here's the the thing that and, and like i i don't want to be um I am not, uh, many people choose to live vegetarian and vegan lifestyles and, and God bless them. I think that's, and, and there's a lot of moral and ethical reasons why they do it. The problem though, to, to borrow a, a, a phrase that is kind of emerging is it's not the cow, it's the how. If you have cows that are a part of a regenerative farm system where the cow eats grass, the cow poops, that poop is going into the soil, fertilizing the soil, making healthy soil, more grass, the cow continues to eat on and on and on. That system works and that keeps soil healthy and it creates more topsoil. When you have a cow, when you have a whole bunch of cows living in a piece of land that is too small for them, where they have to, where they're basically stripping all of the grass out of a place, or they're in a pen, which is what we have with our our um, our CAFO system, where where the cows, these poor animals, never even see the light of day, and are being fed, you know, corn and things like that, which we're also growing in irresponsible ways. Um, those things then become environmental hazards. Those things, that's when meat becomes an environmental problem. Meat that is done in a regenerative way, that is grown in a regenerative, raised in a regenerative way, um, you know, it, it, it's it's healthier, it's better for the environment. But plants that are raised in this same industrial system are doing just as much damage to the environment as meat that is raised in this industrial system. So, you know, it, it's not just about you know, granted, we could all probably stand, uh, the average American, could, we could probably all stand to eat less meat, but it's, it's, we've made a straw man in a lot of circles. We made a straw man of meat when it's really about the industrial food system. So you, and, you used, you used a term in there, regenerative, and yep. there's this term that's, um, you know, that I've seen floating around for a little bit now of regenerative farming. Yeah. Um, is that the kind of thing? So when I, when, cause I, I don't know that many people know that term or if they, if they've seen it, may not be, get it all together, what that is. Yeah. And it's really just working with uh, the natural cycles. It's really just working with the natural systems. If you, you grow plants, you, uh, you harvest from them, you, they die at the end of the season, you compost them that composted plant then becomes fertilizer for the next season. You restore the health of the soil. Um, you rotate crops around so that, um, you know, 
there are certain things like uh, beans and other legumes that put nutrients back into the soil. And you have other things like squashes and broccoli that take nutrients out of the soil. So you want to like rotate them around. And, and, and this is, this is something that is actually as old as agriculture that people have known that if you plant the same crop in the same space over and over again, you are eroding the quality of that soil. We have known that since the beginning of agriculture. Um, but we have we have an industrial system that does not recognize us as a part of an ecosystem. And therefore, those those sorts of regenerative practices where we use what nature does naturally to produce our food. Um, and we can do this to scale, um, but but it means, you know, more smaller farms instead of a couple gigantic farms that are providing all of our food. And, yay, and, yay, capitalism. Leave yeah, this mark, always. One, one more thing about the environmental impact of, of, our, of our industrial food system, um, because I've already given you a very rosy outlook on it. Um, part of the issue of the industrial food system is that I'm in Baltimore and I can get a pineapple in January. Yeah. And part of the one of the biggest impacts that our food system has on the environment is transportation and the burning of fossil fuels to take uh, I, I use pineapples as an example because I actually do like pineapple, but like to to burn fossil fuels to bring things from Chile and from Argentina and from uh and from hawaii and from costa rica and to bring them to the northern united states by by plane by truck by freighter those things are all those are enormous fossil fuel burners and and we are doing that all across the globe all across the globe we are we are importing and exporting food and burning tons of fossil fuels to get food from point a to point b so Another way that local, smaller farms that are a part of the system help ecologically is that uh, we're eating what's in season and our food is traveling shorter distances and we're burning less fossil fuels or no fossil fuels to get the food where it needs to go. So that's also a part of the ecological impact that our food system has on, on the environment. Okay, so question from John Q. Novice Farmer over here. Yeah. What do we grow in the dead of winter when it's January and the ground's frozen? And like, are we growing anything or are we just uh, during, the, during the growing months uh, storing up for the winter? I mean, I think, I think that's, that's part of it is that we're, we're talking about... Um, and, you know, and this this almost sounds like we're going, you know, back to colonial days, but but again, this is this is like we've only had the food system that we have now since the Nixon administration, <laughs> like, and people people canned and they preserved and they stored potatoes and they you know they 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 preserved you know they froze things and. They preserved things and 
you know, you learn to do without in certain seasons. And, um, and, and, and I think that's, that's part of the issue is that like the idea, you know, we've only had this system for a few decades, but it's so a part of our culture now that the idea of depriving ourselves of a food that we enjoy just because it's winter outside. Um, well, you know, yeah, what, what madness th- are you talking? Have you, th- have you met America? Thankfully, <laughs> thankfully with climate change, it won't be winter outside much longer. So, oh, hey, there is that sort of, thing. Sorry, I don't and know. we're on the hope train again. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That was, that was maybe a, a, a step too cynical. <laughs> no. Oh my goodness. So, so, I'm sorry, Kelly, you look, you're about to jump in with a question. No, go ahead. Go ahead. So so given all that then, um, what, I don't want to say what hope is there because we seem pretty pretty set on a course. So I guess the question now becomes um, how, how, do we, how do we shift or how do we find a little bit more balance between what I think is here to stay, which is the unfortunate industrial slash factory farming system that that's probably not getting dismantled anytime soon. So, so what are, what are the alternatives for those of us who want to say like, okay, we, we want to begin to to divest ourselves from that. Yeah. What, what are some steps for us to take and, um, and how can, how can spiritual communities help? Because this is your work. Well, so there's, there's a couple things. Um, one, I, I agree with you. There, there are there are large economic and political forces that are outside of our control. The system's not going anywhere, but there are ways to break away from the system. And I think farmers' markets are a great tool in breaking away from these systems. Um, I think knowing a farmer, like get out and meet a like go to a farm go visit a farm like i don't i think most people haven't been to a farm since a field trip in kindergarten like go to a farm meet a farmer you have if you are anywhere in the united states you have a farm near you and and that farm is probably providing food for places that are way farther away but there are still small family farms um Speak up. We're we're actually um, the farm bill, which comes up every five years. Um, you know, in terms of political advocacy, being able to speak up for a farm bill and learning a little bit about the farm bill and the ways that the farm bill does or does not protect small farmers, um, that is something where you know we can we can reach out to our Congress people and say that this is something that we care about. Um, Outside of that, growing our own food in places that we can, uh, having having small gardens, and again, knowing that we can't completely divest, and like you know, I in ter- even I as a as a person who loves gardening, I, I can't imagine that I grow more than two percent of what my family eats, but yet that's two percent that I'm taking away from from the industrial system. In terms of communities of faith. Um, I, I want to point you to a tool which I actually happen to have sitting right next to my desk. Um, it's called the Faithlands Toolkit, and it is created by the Agrarian Trust. Um, if you are a part of the of a community of faith, 
And particularly if you are a part of a community of faith that has some land, consider a community garden on your land. Now, I understand that there's probably a grounds committee you're going to have to fight with, but have that fight. That fight is worthwhile because most of our churches are spending hundreds of dollars, if not thousands of dollars, mowing a lawn and probably putting chemicals into that lawn, thus making it yep. more toxic to maintain this lush green facade when we could be doing something that uh, beautifies our community, because I think that gardens are more beautiful than lawns, and provides food for our local food pantries, um, provides food for our, our constituencies in terms of our, our congregations, um, and, and honestly is also just a really great witness to the non-church world that we give a damn about about right. food and about these these systems um so what, I think, um yeah, sorry i just no, i want to uh, before you keep going i, I never want to interrupt but i before i forget right i'm gonna have a before i have a brain cloud um <laughs> so when you started talking about you know faith communities or churches and when they if they especially if they have you know quite a bit of property and then you said you know about getting pushback from you know facilities what are the 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 arguments against doing it like what what are people's i mean for me if you have a huge lawn you know a church with a big lawn and you have to mow it and fertilize it and all that it's a you know a mascot to the plantation you know yeah. kind of thing which i i said way yeah, at I, the beginning i, I love it <laughs> um but i that's how i see it so i'm i'm I probably could guess what the pushback is, but what is it that you hear from people? Like why the unwillingness? So the pushbacks you'll hear is that growing food on your property, it attracts pests. It attracts homeless people. Like heaven forbid that hungry people would come onto your land and avail themselves of food. Yeah, we wouldn't want that um, to happen. And And I think more than anything is that and this is the thing that people don't want to say, but they're saying it without saying it, is that for a lot of people, they don't want to break the unwritten suburban social contract, which is that we will have a pristine facade of of to the outside world of what we look like. And it is very much a holdover from plantation days and and it's actually even further back it is a it is a holdover from european aristocracy days the idea that to have a manicured mm -hmm. lawn meant that i am so rich i don't have to grow on my land i don't have to grow food on my land because i'm so rich i can have land and basically waste it with grass and flowers that idea has kind of held itself over into the way that we see our suburbs, the way that we see our properties maintained. And it's, it's kind of demonic um, and really um, uh, it, it's really misguided 
it, it misguided is the nicest way I so, can say what so, I'm trying to say. So before the flower lovers of the world start sending us hate mail, um, we, we, we have to remind you that uh, that no 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 plant will exist without flowers. So they're, Grow they're flowers. They're beautiful flowers <laughs> on vegetable plants too. Absolutely. Uh, and, just remind and, you and, that. And, and you will actually typically you will typically have healthier vegetables if you grow flowers with them. So again, there is no reason to sacrifice aesthetics to have a garden on your property. Right. In fact, you are probably increasing the aesthetic value of, of your property by having a garden there. Yes, you'll have to do some maintenance, but think about this. There are, we are constantly bemoaning, uh, and I by we, I mean those of us who are in the church world, we are constantly bemoaning the the loss and lack of young people in our churches mm-hmm. but young people will consistently say that the number one thing that they care about right now is climate change yes so if you want to to invite people into your worshiping community i think having gardens where you talk about how you are thinking ecologically about this garden on your church property might be one of the best outreach things you could do. So uh, there's all kinds of pushback and so much of it boils down to we've always done it this way. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, that is, that is going to be printed on the church's tombstone that, (laughs) that we've always done it this way. And, and I, 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 you know, I, the 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 problem is I you know I'm I'm laughing internally because I I right now I I hear myself and I sound so cynical and and yet I am every day encountering people who are having these conversations and working towards these things and and taking up the mantle to do this good work in their faith communities in the communities that surround their faith communities. Um, and so, so despite how cynical I might sound, I'm actually incredibly hopeful about this because I see people doing the good work all the time. And what if a faith community doesn't really have, doesn't have land or, or, um, you know, property to do that? I mean, I know if they have a little bit, they could maybe do some raised beds and things, but, but if that's not really an option, then what, what could the community do? Partner. And I think I think that that is one of the things that we again speaking very generally of of, of the faith community at large, um, we are so adverse to programming that we didn't start. And uh, yes, and and yes, one of the again one of the best outreach things that we can do is partner with folks who are already doing the work in our communities, and maybe that means we have to, you know walk a couple blocks and maybe that means we have to maybe be outside of our buildings and maybe that means that we have to know a little bit of what's actually happening in the community that surrounds us but and but, and meet our and meet our neighbors and meet our neighbors and yeah. and you know all these sorts of things that you know um might actually put a friendly loving face to our congregations um, but I think partnering and, and creating good partnerships with, um, you know, I, I, the community garden that I um, sort of kind of help manage, um, the church that most of our volunteers come from is, is, is a 
downtown church that doesn't have a whole lot of land, but they come, you know, about a, a mile, mile or two out of their way and they come and they volunteer in the space because they see the value of it. And I think being able to create those kinds of partnerships where, yeah, we don't have the land to do it, but like we see the value. And so we want to support with our dollars and with our volunteer hours and with our, our goodwill and, and maybe other resources that we do have internally to our church, like um, industrial kitchens that so many churches have. That when you actually get to the place where you're thinking about, you know, um, a lot of people who are doing growing are also thinking about the fact that people might not know how to prepare the things that they grow and being able to do cooking demonstrations in an industrial commercial kitchen that is embedded in a church. That's a great partnership. Um, and, and for some reason, so many of our churches have commercial kitchens. And that is a huge asset. That is a huge potential blessing to our communities, which for most of the churches that I know sits empty six days of a week. Yeah. Yeah. But I really love what you said about the whole, uh, uh, we struggle with the idea because we didn't come up with it. There's a, yeah. there's just a, a, a weird level of, of egoism in that, yeah. that, that is, you know, the rank opposite of humility. Um, so, um, so let me ask you this. Um, do you, do you travel to help churches uh, set stuff up like this or, or because if someone's like, you know, listening to this podcast and, you know, they, they're part of a church or a spiritual community or even just in the neighborhood and they're like, yeah, we got some land. I want to do this. Let me go track that Derek guy down. Uh, are you, do you, do you travel to help set stuff up like that? Or what, how, what, what are some first steps that people can yeah. do? Um, yeah. It can get overwhelming pretty quickly, especially as church sizes have shrunk. It, it can. And, and again, that's, that's why I, I do do some traveling and consulting on this stuff and I'm happy for people to reach out to me um in in that capacity but i i I do again i want to i want to just really highly recommend uh the faithlands toolkit that i mentioned earlier because it gives a lot of um it gives a lot of practical suggestions as to how to get these things started including uh where you can reach out to find partners and where you can reach out to um build relationships and yeah. I'll I'll put that I'll put that link in the show notes um, on the podcast and and um, and on Facebook when we post this so people can click easy through to it. I'll get, and, I downloaded it while you were talking, Derek. And and, 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 oh, and by <laughs> and by the way, it's free. Um, it is. And I I got I got my printed version I think for the cost of shipping, which I think was three bucks. Um, the other thing that it does though is that it gives theological underpinning for this for those who have who are still having difficulty connecting the dots from this is a great thing to do but it has nothing to do with the church it gives you some of those those those, those theological resources to be able to kind of back this up and say no this is actually a theological thing for us to be doing well oh. I, I know i made a joke that i downloaded it while you were talking and um 
uh, and not just because, you know, I'm not just a Bible nerd. I'm just a general nerd. And <laughs> somebody gives me a resource. I'm going to go read it. It's really deadly because I am going to guess that within that it's, a, you know, almost 150 pages long. There's other links or other oh, yeah. resources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, so, it's, it's, it's so a I'm going to I'm going to be right. I'm going to be reading forever and ever and ever. <laughs> um, but I think it's uh, it. it that's the biggest one of the stumbling blocks I come up against is, you know, churches have shrunk in size mm -hmm. and don't know, like, I want to do this, but I don't even know where to get started. Um, so I'm really glad for that. And, and to have the theological underpinning and you can leave that out as well. Exactly. Um, you know, and whatever your, your theological bent is, I, I, I'm sort of uh, joking, laughing a little bit inside because the, how, you know, I'm not going to do something unless we've created it, you know, kind of thing. And we have this saying about how churches operate as silos. Mm -hmm. And I find that wholly intriguing to use that metaphor, a silo, <laughs> which stores food, you know, grain nice. as a, you know, sort of, yeah. it just, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the deeper you get into this, this kind of work, the, the uh, more the metaphors flow. <laughs> um, <laughs> um before we wrap up i do want to say uh congratulations on the on the book i know it was quite the labor of love for you um take a take a moment to plug it please yeah so uh the book is actually not out until october but it is it is available for pre-order um i wrote it with my um podcast co-host anna um and uh, so it's called the Just, the Just Kitchen Invitations to Sustainability, Cooking, Celebration, and Connection. Um, maybe it's Connection and Celebration, either, either way. Um, and, and one of the things that I think, you know, in, in, this, in this food conversation, uh, so often we talk about the production side of it, but really it's where the rubber meets the road for all of us is in the kitchen. Um, it's in the place of where we're going to decide what to eat three times a, a day, um, every day, and how our values and our stories are lived out in that space. Um, so it was, it was, it's great. It's mostly like it's it, the folks that we interviewed for this book aren't professionals. They are people who cook. They are people who have to cook for their families. They are people who some of them don't like to cook. There are some of them who who love to cook. There are some of them who have um, deep uh, connections to their heritage through the things that they cook. There are people who are um, trying to create a culture and heritage through the things that they cook. And, and just recognizing that all of these big issues um, that we're talking about. And we do talk about some of these issues of, of the, the um, industrial agricultural system. All of these issues then get played out in sort of the laboratory of our kitchens. And so being able to have our kitchens be a space where, where, we, um, where we live out our values, where we invite people in to be with us and to understand the things that we care about, and where we celebrate life. And and where where food becomes you know the the thing I hate most about 
Uh, I don't know. I, I realized that was a very strong statement I was about to make. But a, thi- a thing I hate a lot is is the notion of food as fuel. Food is, we are not mm. cars. We are not machines. Food is not fuel. Food is our most intimate relationship to the created world. And 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 when we when we hmm. obscure that relationship with plastic and with chemicals and with dyes and with things grown in a lab, um, we are really missing out on the fact that to kind of bring it full circle, that we are a part of an ecosystem and what we eat and what's eating us is a part of that. Um, that ecosystem and and the ways that we live into being a part of an ecosystem. So that's the I just kitchen. That. Food food is not fuel. It's yeah. not. It's not. It's not. It is a relationship. Food is a relationship. Mm. It is a relationship that we have to the plants and animals and people. Yeah, around it's our us. it's our history. It's our culture. It is joy. It is it is so many so many it's community things. well being community yep. care. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. I I never I I never think. I mean, you're you're saying it now. It's only now that you're saying it that I say to myself, "You're right." When I eat, it's never about uh, I need this to stay alive, right? That's right. that's never a thought in my head. It's 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 about what do I enjoy? The the struggle between the struggle between what tastes good and what's good for me, <laughs> and that struggle you know, is real. <laughs> right. What I, what I should be eating more of and maybe a little bit less of and, you know, and all the. Or, well, now, that, you know, now, you know, you have to eat twice as many vegetables. You know, what? they got pills for that. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that that is that is part of the racket is uh, have, exactly it is. It we, is part of the racket. Um, but anyways, uh, thank you. Thank you so much uh, uh, once again for joining us and, and illuminating us some more uh, on this Yes. Very, very important, and not just important, but I'm going to add urgent issue on on top of it because it is timely, and the and the time is now uh, that we have to pay attention to this because things are devolving and and getting worse. I just I just read an article the other day about I think it's in Japan. Uh, scientists found uh, uh, plastic that had chemically bonded to rocks now. So before it wasn't just microplastics and waste in the ocean. <laughs> now. Now we have plastic chemically bonded to parts of nature. So it's not like you can't just go scrub the scrub the stuff off now. It is yeah. it's getting it's getting insane. Um and and we forget that we've created the insanity, but we are also the solution uh to the insanity. And part of it comes from knowing not just what to do, but realize that it is doable. Yeah. So yeah. thank you so much yeah. for uh, joining us. Um, just to remind folks, you can uh, learn more about Derek and his work and get some resources at creationjustice.org. He mentioned the agrariantrust.org uh, website where you can download that Faithlands uh, toolkit. Um, for our listeners, just a reminder that uh, we started our Rest is Resistance and Manifesto book exploration, and that's on Tuesday nights. Um, from 7.30 to 9.30. And as always, every first and third Wednesday, we have our affinity groups, our discussion groups. Please uh, um, get involved in those as well to have uh, discussions. Um, As always, we are on all the podcast platforms. So tell your friends about us, share this episode, especially with 
folks, if you are in churches and you got some land and you've been wondering about what to do with it, or you really want to put that land to good work for the climate and your neighborhood, uh, share this episode with them. Uh, we're on all the podcast platforms. And if you have that one friend that still doesn't know what a podcast is, you can listen to us on the interwebs at with love and justice for all dot podbean dot um, uh, Thank you again, Derek. Thank you, Kelly. And until we meet again, let's get our holy on. Holy on.